Welcome to another episode of Content Detrimental. I am Dan Lust, joined by Landis Barber. What's up, buddy? Hey, how's it going? Good to be back here. Yes, yes, certainly happy to have you back in the seat. So, uh, you know, we got a week where, eh, you know, it's not that much sports going on. You know, we have obviously college sports news to cover, lots of college topics. And then we were going around the sports little horn. We're very close. I imagine some Deshaun Watson news. The reports are that Dan Snyder will give a deposition testimony. At, I think it's like eight o'clock on Thursday, July 28th. We were going to do a conduct cast, but we're not sure if it's going to be live streamed. It might actually just be done privately. So they're, they're going over the, the details, what the hearing will look like. Certainly, if it is publicized, we will cover it. But we're sitting here and I'm like, who am I going to bring on that knows a lot about college sports? And I'm like, my good buddy, Landis. So certainly happy to have you back. And then we're going to be joined later in the show by Jeremy Evans, California sports lawyer, to cover some of the same college issues. But certainly Jeremy, as a California guy, has a different perspective with two of the beloved schools, USC and UCLA, moving over to Big Ten country. Landis, Kyler Murray. Oh, goodness. Kyler Murray and his big payday. I'm going to read off a list of numbers, okay? $150 million, $160 million, $230 million. Those three dollars, dollar amounts, are the largest three guaranteed contracts in NFL history. The first one I mentioned is Aaron Rodgers, $150 million. Okay, it's a lot of money. Aaron Rodgers, though, back-to-back MVP winner. You know, he's won a Super Bowl. Aaron Rodgers, right? Probably going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. Number two on that list, Kyler Murray. And then number one is obviously Deshaun Watson, which makes absolutely no sense, but we'll skip that for now. We'll talk enough about him. So Kyler Murray given a $160 million contract by the Arizona Cardinals. We have not really discussed Kyler at all on this podcast, but there was, uh, you know, I follow the, and Landis, I know you do as well. I follow the different social media companies and goings, even though they don't have to do with sports law. Kyler Murray, I think, removed like all traces of Arizona Cardinals on his social media. He did a little bit of a pouty Kyler action, then it left a, a lot of fun memes because Kyler is not of the tallest stature. So when people calling him a pouty baby, then, you know, they memed him into an actual baby, which, you know, uh, listen, you're going to, you're going to cry over making millions of dollars. Uh, no one's going to feel any sympathy. But as we sit here today, certainly Kyler got his way, got a massive contract. But why we're we talking about Kyler, not because of some big, I don't know, uh, contract, a very peculiar clause in that contract. So, Landis, I'll, I'll let you explain that, which you know, I, I think is, is worth examination. Yeah, it basically had a clause in his contract that said he has to pretty much study film during the week. Um, and that does not include his team meetings or anything like that. So really, he has to do his homework weekly, which is kind of curious um, because Kyler Murray, even though he hasn't won in the playoffs, has been a successful quarterback in different spots that he's landed. But yeah, it's clear that the Cardinals are worried about his preparation and want preparation to be a focus going into the next season. There's a lot of reporting on this, and I'm, you know, I've looked at any, every NFL contract in history, but the, the people out there are saying that this has never been done before. And if he does fail to watch four hours of independent study per week on the team-issued tablet, that he will forfeit up to $100 million. And I read the, the actual clause, right? It speaks to not like watching like i guess i guess they're going to play the, the film for him in the background and i guess they'll be it's almost like studying for the bar exam that's going to have that little like line as to completion but if if he has a tv on in the background that doesn't count as the four hours and i'm like so there's a quote that was circulating you know i imagine it's an accurate quote but it said that 
you know, in 2021, Collar had some quote that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't watch that much film. So in 2022, he's now has to watch film or else he'll forfeit his contract. So, you know, when I grew up, my parents always used to provide incentives like, hey, if you get an A on this test, I'll give you five dollars or I'll buy you a Beanie Baby or whatever I was, whatever was incentivizing me back then. Um, can you imagine? Hey, watch four hours of film because you're a professional football player and we'll give you a hundred million dollars. Now, I, I view that the other way. If you need that incentive, right, to watch film for four hours, right, God, God forbid, in a week that involves, you know, you and I are working way more than our normal 40 hour work weeks, right? Absolutely. I find it, you know, you know, I make the joke, Landis, the assumption of the risk. If you are signing that guy the second most guaranteed money in NFL history, and he doesn't have a pension or apparently a joy for watching game film. He's not like a film rat, right? There's a red flag. I, I will say there's a red flag. And Kyler's also, you and I are, are football guys. The Cardinals open up to a hot start every year. And then slowly but surely, the team, uh, you know, gets back to 500 and, and sub 500. And that tells you that's a team that's not making the, you know, adaptations, not studying, uh, you know, so I'm not, um, I was never a coach or anything like that, but usually the teams that do better, the teams that adapt over the course of the year, and that's watching and studying film coaches can do it all they want. But if the QB, the signal caller is not going to do it, I don't know, a little bit of red flag. Am I, am I alone on a red flag Island or are you joining me here? No, I think it's clear that the Arizona Cardinals, they're alarmed and they should be alarmed. You're investing this much money in a quarterback. You want them to study. They, down the stretch last year, I believe what they lost four of their last five, five of their last six. So when it comes crunch time, like you said, they start every season off hot uh, and they start to fade away towards the end. So like you said, if you're going to invest this much money, you want them to come in late in the season. You want them to be successful all season, but especially late in the season when it all counts. I, I love, so I'm pulling up a subsection. It's, it's an addendum to his contract, section three, subsection B. You guys can find this online. And I, I did tweet it out, but it says, one of the ways that Kyler Murray will not get credit for watching film under B, it says, players engaged in any other activity that may distract his attention, parentheses. For example, comma, watching television, comma, playing video games or browsing the internet while such material is being displayed or played. Do you know how embarrassing that is that that made its way into a contract? Like, I get it. Like I've written, you know, I've written contracts that have been redlined and changed. That's like the first draft. Like, Hey, Kyler, by the way, you can't watch TV while you're doing this. I, and also like, I don't know, let, let's talk about this contract draft practically. How in the, you know, what would the Cardinals know if he was watching television while watching this iPad? Like do they have like a, you know, like surveillance on him. Like this, this is just the fact that they felt the need to write it tells you all you need to know that Kyler's not watching film. I don't know how they monitor this, right? Uh, there's that old story with uh, Jamarcus Russell, like that they used to, they weren't confident that Jamarcus Russell, maybe one of the biggest draft butts in NFL history, was watching game film. So to test him, they gave him a DVD, they gave him like a old school, like a DVD right. box. And they said, hey, Jamarcus, here's uh, the game film for the next week. And uh, it was like literally blank discs. And he came back and they're like, what do you think of that game film? And Jamarcus like, Oh, I loved it. It was great. You know, I know I'm ready for the game coach. And like, you know, like that's how you figure out if someone's not watching film. I don't know how you give a guy $160 million for pouting and saying he wants to leave. He's basically telling you he's unhappy and you know, he's not watching film. That doesn't seem like a recipe for success. You know, I could be wrong, but that just doesn't seem like it adds up. I'm with you. I just don't understand how they're going to monitor all this unless they're going to make him sit. Are they going to assign him a person to watch him watch film? <laughs> It's almost like it's not like, a, it's not like a seeing eye dog. They're just going to assign <laughs> someone to just like watch him at all, yeah. at all, at all costs. And we could talk about this for a while, but at the end of the day, like lawyers, we, we people wonder what we do all day. There's a lot of drafting. There's a lot of review. 
I, I'm going to blame, you know, Kyler's side for letting, letting the language seep into the contract that makes it so obvious as to what it is. So it is what it is, but props to Kyler's agent for getting this deal done. You know, we're talking about this list. The other agent, while we're, while we're here, we're not going to talk about the Sean Watson news. By the time any listen to this, maybe there's going to be a decision on the Watson suspension. But, you know, number one on that list, right? $150 million, Aaron Rodgers, $160 million, Kyler Murray, $230 million guaranteed to Deshaun Watson. It can be, you can call it the Browns dummies. You can say Deshaun Watson doesn't deserve it. The agent that brokered that deal, Landis, you know, we have the sports law awards that we're handing out the end of the year. They're mainly for sports law attorneys and sports law students, but like, I don't know that guy deserves a medal to, to pull, come out with $230 million for a client who might get suspended for the entirety of the season. Again, it might be some sort of suspension. Maybe it's no suspension, but the fact that these trials are still going to be ongoing until April of 2023, I have no idea how he convinced the Browns to take that. I mean, I do, Unreal. but it's, it feels like a dream. And it doesn't sound like there was a uh, do your homework clause in Sean Watson's contract. <laughs> there probably should have been a different clause, but um, <laughs> probably should have been a, a, a protection order from entering all uh, massage-related facilities. I think I think that probably would have been a good clause. And and like you and I, you and I are joking. Like, do we know if that's in the contract or not in the contract? Because it probably should have been. Uh, uh, yes. If we're, if we're being 100% serious, like if the Browns want to make sure there's no recidivism here, recidivism, fancy way of saying doing it all over again, maybe make some financial disincentive to doing it because certainly Kyler has one for, you know, playing video games and watching films. So maybe, possibly, there should have been a financial disincentive for Sean Watson to engage in gray areas of illicit activity. Maybe, uh, Landis, we know a thing or two. We've been around the block once or twice. Okay, so let's move over to college sports. We had a couple of big updates. Obviously, I think we, we spoke about in this podcast last time. We launched at New York Law School the NIL Pro Bono Project. So we've had a couple, we'll say, rising agents reach out to us that are trying to get into the space. Had some D3 athletes and some lower level athletes. I don't, want, I don't want to shout out anybody by name at this point because we're still you know, getting our feet off the ground. But you know, at the end of the day, there are a lot of athletes that are in need because of and agents because of this changing landscape constantly. So we have I, we have flagged. We're going to cover these with Jeremy as well. So I don't want to you know dive into them too much. But you know, the fact that the NCA is suggesting a transfer rule that will just allow unlimited transfers. It's pretty big news that an athlete can be moving that often, and especially in the agent world, right? Anytime, you know, an athlete's going to get paid a large sum of money, the agent's going to be looking for a piece of that. So athlete rights, agent rights, got to look into that. USC, UCLA moving, right? Imagine if you are a USC, UCLA student, and now, you know, you're flying across the country to compete in, in uh, golf events or, you know, baseball. So, you know, that was big. And then, you know, obviously the, the elephant in the room is the unionization conversation, you know, with Penn State. So Landis, I'll, I'll give it to you whichever way you want to take it. Yeah, I mean, first you could talk about the you could talk about the transfer rule, the Division One Council recommending to eliminate the restriction against players transferring multiple times. That's set to go in front of the board of directors August third, which they're expected to approve that recommendation. And it, it certainly changes the game for athletes. Now they are very similar to students, just regular students who are allowed to transfer as many times as they want. And it just goes to show you that. The Division One and the NCAA is transitioning to more and more of a business. It's it was you know UCLA and USC leaving the conference to go to the Big Ten, showcasing that now we're going to have these sort of national conferences, and that that was driven by money. And now athletes are going to be just free range, allowed to transfer, and they're going to be allowed to take deals. And it seems like they're going to have an opportunity to take deals, take new deals each year, or test the market each year. So we'll see where it leads to. But now they're becoming more like traditional students. And I know people are worried, but 
more unlike more unlike traditional or you're saying more like traditional students or unlike more more like traditional students in being able to freely transfer oh. and move and be eligible to do things uh, i was going to say i i think as of today they have never looked more unsimilar dissimilar dissimilar to student athletes <laughs> you know th- this is free agency at its finest this is essentially you know in, in the nba and other sports you can in theory lock someone into a three four-year contract and then right you know, but I guess in this day and age, guys like Durant are trying to move with years left on their deal. But in college sports, if you're going to allow a guy to transfer every year, this is like the LeBron world. You just have guys right. working on your contract. So the ones that win there are the agents. So, yeah, I don't I, I think our college athletes have never looked more like professionals and less like college athletes. So, yeah. But, you know, for that sense, you know, we'll we'll talk about it with Jeremy a lot with UCA, USC and UCLA stuff. And then I guess, you know, dovetails into the last part, which we'll, we'll talk about with Jeremy as well the unionization conversation. Um, as athletes begin to look more and more like professionals and more and more like employees, that conversation that they should just be allowed to unionize and, and bargain for their, you know, uh, for their rights, you know, with the CBA or formal bargaining. I mean, that's, I don't know, we're, we're getting closer. Maybe it's not gonna happen to Penn State, but it's, it's getting there. So I don't know, it's a changing tides of college sports. Well, well, we'll see. I'm hearing hearing some rumblings of some big stuff behind the scenes, but I I don't want to pull a uh, a, a, a the Gottlieb scenario and report something without without actually knowing it. So I'll I'll hold back for now. Landis, I, I have a question for you. You ready What's for this? Yeah. What states are you admitted in in the bar? Is three just, states. Oh, three states. What, what states? North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee. Okay. So the reason I ask this week begins bar examination week around the country. I know a number of law students taking the bar, you know, Landis and I, we survived, as they say, you survive in advance in college sports and you do that a little bit in the bar. So shout out to all of our uh, audience that are taking the bar right now, about to take it maybe in the, in the weeks to come if you're not uh, in the states that have it this week. But the reason I bring it up, obviously the main sponsor of our show, Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the galaxy. And yeah, I mean, those guys uh, are, are really, really doing a service. And I have, I have said that I'm thinking about taking another bar exam in uh, for the February bar. None of those three states getting getting a little bit closer though, so I'm having those jitters. I'm I'm like six months out from potentially doing this thing all over again. I'm not not shocked to do it, but you know it is what it is. Any any bar horror you know horror stories that you have, I have one. Uh, not not of mine, but my wife. But I'll I'll let you go first if you have one. I don't have any real bar horror stories, except for the fact that when we were taking the bar exam, we have a two day exam here in North Carolina, and when we were taking the exam on the lunch break of the essay day, so. This was when we had the practical, um, the practicum on the first day and different things like that. And then essays in the second half of the day at the lunch break, a guy was running by where I was having lunch, which was out in the parking lot. And he just stopped and said, are y'all taking the bar examination? And we said, yes, yes, we are taking the bar examination. We're about to do essays and different things like that. And he said, that's very interesting. Somebody was telling me that family law is going to be on the essays and oh. immediately jet back to my car to study family law. And he was right. He was right. He was right. Family law was on the essays. So. Now, this is an important question. Was this man fully clothed? Yes. He yes. was not a crazy person just shouting out. No, names. no he was not. Do you think so. he took a wild guess or you think he knew? I think he took a wild guess and just got lucky because we had a lot of topics on the essays. But either way, I was glad he did because wild guess or not, because I went and studied. 
let's see the the rule of thumb for the bar. I mean, maybe it's a little late for some of our test takers, but don't talk to anybody during the breaks because they can don't. freak you out. They can only freak you out that you got a question wrong, and those people have no idea. The people that are talking a lot during the breaks, they have no concept, so they, they just try to freak you out. They'll be like, "Oh, I, it was so funny. I got every answer was B." Back to back to back to back. You didn't get that? Oh, I guess you probably failed. There's no point in taking the back session. My story is not one of mine. It's one for my, my wife. So when my wife, my wife is a later in life law student. She's now a practicing attorney. But when she took the bar, she was like six months pregnant with our youngest daughter. So she is like literally like the pregnant woman at the bar that everyone's nervous about. That's going to like pop during the exam. And, you know, it's going to be a whole scene. So this, you know, my wife, who is a, an absolute saint, she all ready to go. She got her laptop and starts taking the exam like a couple minutes in laptop crashes. She, you know, calm, cool and collected in this moment, walked to the front, you know, waddled her way over. Mrs. Uh, pregnant Mrs. Lost got a blue book and she's like, I'm just writing this thing. And she obviously, you know, ends up passing and, and uh, rocking the exam. But I remember I'm like, you know, when someone gets an exam, you're like, how was the exam? And she's like, my computer broke. And I'm like, wait, what? And then she's like, and I had to handwrite the entire exam. I'm like, have you ever practiced handwriting an exam? She's like, never. I had only done exam four or whatever the software is. So um, listen, uh, things can go wrong, but you got to persevere. You just got to, you got to fight your way through it. I don't know if there's a lesson in this, but expect the unexpected at the bar, right? You could have crazy people in the street that are maybe partially closed, maybe fully closed, fully closed, <laughs> but you never know. Do you want to learn more about the bar? And if you are, we, we have a growing amount of pre-law students. We got the shout out to our producer, Mike, who pulled the our demographics kind of metrics, which we didn't know we had on Apple Podcasts. So we have a lot of non-law school age students that listen to the show. And if you are thinking about bar prep, where are you going to learn this? Should I learn anything about it now early on? If you want to head over to themisbar.com slash condetrimental, you can check out our page. Tell them we sent you and uh, they'll give you a nice little discount code. But also if you just reach out to us, we're happy to give you the lowdown on the bar. Okay, Landis, with that said, I think it's time to send it over to our friend from California, Mr. California Sports Lawyer. That is Mr. Jeremy Evans. We have a special treat here. It's a home and home, believe in sports law and conduct detrimental. Jeremy Evans, the host of Believe in Sports Law with Jeremy Evans. What's up, buddy? Hey, Dan, good to see you, my friend. Good to be with you and uh, looking forward to our conversation today. And those that don't know me, I am Dan Lust. I am one half of Conduct Detrimental alongside Dan Wallach. So, you know, as these things happen, uh, we have some issues in New York, some issues in California. I was looking into this USC, UCLA departure, some threats by Gavin Newsom. And I thought to call you because I, I figured you would have some insight on this interesting world of, you know, UC and the, the region schools. So, uh, you know, as we got to talking, it just seemed like we were like mid podcast. So I don't know, Jeremy, this, I guess this is kind of both of our shows right now. Do you want to give the background on the, on the Pac-12, USC, UCLA stuff? Do you want me to do it? A little bit of both? You're up to you. Up to you. Yeah, no, let's do a little bit of both. Maybe I'll start us off and then uh, and then jump in whenever you want. But this is such an interesting situation because UCLA is a public school and the UC regents are essentially the governing body when it comes to the UCs. So UCLA, UC Berkeley, UC Merced, uh, UC Hastings, uh, UC Davis, and then the other schools that are in UC San Diego, uh, the other schools that are in that sort of under that umbrella. But the question is, is whether Governor Newsom has the power to essentially oversee the school from the point that he is the, the chair of the sort of UC regents by nature of his position as governor of California. But the question is, is whether the PAC-12 is a part of the regents. And I think it's clear in my mind, contractually, it's not. The PAC-12 can do as it pleases. And, and frankly, 
by nature the fact that Oregon, Arizona State, University of Arizona, Utah, and Colorado all play Stanford, they all play in the Pac-12, those are not UC schools. So in my mind, I see the UC Regents as more of an academic piece. They're not overseeing the Pac-12. As a matter of fact, the UC Regents had nothing to do with the Pac-12 when it increased from eight teams to 10 or from 10 teams to 12. And it had nothing to do with the television negotiations or anything else. And so even a further background on this is that UCLA and USC are obviously a part of the Pac-12, one of the Power Five conferences, and they decided to lead to the Big Ten conference to make a 16-team conference out of the Big Ten, which would put Michigan and UCLA and USC and Illinois and Indiana and Michigan State and Ohio State all in the same division, along with Penn State. So television dollars-wise, just to put this in perspective, Pac-12 usually ranges around $19 to $30 million per year. By UCLA and USC leaving to the Big Ten, there's potential that this could go to maybe more like 50, 60, even $70 million a year uh, per team because of the, the sort of national exposure from coast to coast, you know, all the way from Maryland and Pennsylvania to California. Obviously, a big gap in the, uh, the Southwest and the Mountain West in terms of teams. You know, I think the closest school is USC, I guess, to, I guess, would be Nebraska. So there's a big gap there. But that's that's kind of the what's what's going on. And I don't think the move is in jeopardy. Uh, in my mind, I, I think that UCLA and USC uh, would have done their due diligence to check to see who they had to check in with, what they had to do. And frankly, you know, if the UC regents, you know, were expecting some sort of update or some sort of notice about it, I don't necessarily blame uh, UCLA and USC for for not giving them some sort of courtesy notice because you know clearly you know what that would have done. It would have put this out in the press before they wanted it. They wanted to be able to control the narrative that they were leaving and and not to have it uh, sabotaged, if you will. So yeah, I think I think you explained it well. I think some of the numbers that people need to keep in mind, right? I remember, and this is, I imagine this is part of it. I'm, I'm sure we can verify this, but Jeremy, do you remember that Under Armour deal gone wrong with UCLA? I, I know I spent a lot of time with it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it was a deal that, uh, you know, I think uh, UCLA wished they had back. And I was, you know, in the, in the past couple of days and weeks, there's been a lot written about this move and why UCLA felt the need to move. And the more you dig into it, yeah, certainly it's it's about the money. But if you really look into the numbers, it might have been a move out of like necessity, right? There's There's been reports that the athletic department's facing unprecedented $102 million deficit and that this television deal, yes, it's lucrative, but it's not just like, okay, you're going to be making more money. It's reportedly going to be double what they would have made under the PAC-12 deal. So from a financial standpoint, right? Like, I don't know if you're running UCLA or USC, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stick to UCLA for now, but if you're running UCLA, from a business standpoint, it's kind of a no-brainer. And Jeremy, you gave me kind of an education on, on the Regents' involvement here, right? From Riverside, Santa Cruz, and obviously Berkeley. Of all the various UC schools, Jeremy, are there 10? I think there are 10 in my, my research, right? I think there is 10, yeah. The only one that's in the Pac-12 is Berkeley. So I, I saw an article from the Los Angeles Times that was talking about maybe, you know, the Regents would require UCLA to pay some type of exit fee to Cal, you know, UC California. And I'm like... That would be crazy if, you know, of all the schools that, you know, in the, the region circuit, these 10 schools that like UCLA would have to pay Cal. So, I mean, 
honestly, this is my standpoint. And obviously, Jeremy, your, your law firm is called the California Sports Lawyers. You're the perfect person to kind of talk about this. But it seems like the optics from Newsom's perspective, right? You have a school, California, you know, in the state of California, which is losing two of its preeminent teams, right? Newsom doesn't control the whole Pac-12. You have schools that are in Washington, in Oregon, but you have those two schools leave. And all of a sudden, and I've spoke to people associated with the Pac-12, like the conference is all of a sudden in jeopardy. So, you know, if the conference is in jeopardy, I think, you know, Governor Newsom is going to step up because he has wealthy donors that are located within the state of uh, California that are worried about the conference and worried about the history of Pac-12 football. So I'm, I'm with you. I didn't, you know, as I read, read through the you know various the stuff that's out here, I don't see Newsom having the authority to pull back the deal. But, you know, at the end of the day, right, you know, UCLA is a public institution uh, and there are state monies that, you know, very frequently go to UCLA. So maybe they're going to feel the the impact there. Right. You and I are maybe you'll see it on the, the California side. I'm not going to see it because I don't follow stuff in California that has nothing to do with sports. But, yeah, I think that's maybe the fear that UCLA should be worried about the relationship with Newsom. But from a defection perspective, I think that ship has sailed. I agree. So there's eight schools in the UC system. And it's interesting because out of all the schools, really, in terms of a sports perspective, it's really UCLA and Berkeley and then maybe uh, UC San Diego and some of their schools with maybe soccer and some of the other sports but in terms of football basketball right it's 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 berkeley and it's really ucla when it comes to sort of the the big brand right and so i agree i mean maybe you know the governor tries to issue some sort of fee or fine and and says you know this is what it you know you're going to to basically to get out of but that's the problem though that the governor has is that the the governor is not privy to the pac12 contract that this is a private association so him trying to say that leaving the Pac-12, which has nothing to do with the UC Regents, there's no privity of contract there, right? There's nothing going on. The only thing that he can do, to your point, is you know maybe he issues a fine, but of course that's going to be litigated. Um, you know, UCLA is probably not going to stand for that. But again, I I don't think that UCLA or UCLA or USC would have got into this situation had they not done their due diligence on it. But I think it's a great move for the school. As sad as it is to leave the Pac-12, I mean, I love the, the the relationships with Stanford and with Oregon and some of the other teams, right? But at the end of the day, the Pac-12 was not providing what UCLA and what USC wanted, which was more money and more exposure. Let's just talk about the mechanics, right? So you you alluded to it, and it's true, right? The, the Big Ten is not the only conference in sports that ranges from coast to coast, literally from Jersey to California. So maybe the SEC in this uh, battle for conference realignment and musical chairs, maybe the SEC has more firepower, but can they say that they cover three time zones, right? So all of this at the end of the day, this this entire move from also from the SEC side, you know, the weakness of the ACC, the weakness maybe of the Pac-12, a lot of this is this era of television revenue, right? That the Big Ten is reportedly going to get like close to a billion dollars, maybe a little bit more from the, their next deal that's supposed to come up. So they were retooling to try to get the biggest and best price for you know their network rights. So USC and UCLA certainly adds that. But then you look at it from UCLA's perspective. And again, you know the regions can say whatever they want. You know, this is harming student athletes because they're going to have to fly like you know, swimmers and, you know, non-football and basketball players, those guys are making money, but athletes that are playing in non-revenue generating sports, swimming, wrestling, you know, golf, you name it, that they are going to have to be traveling and playing in a Big Ten schedule. They'll have to fly to, to the East Coast, 
right, to, to play in some games. So that's, that's troublesome. You know, you'd have a hard time if you were the AD at UCLA, USC, defending that from a student-athlete perspective. But from a monetary perspective, you know, the Pac-12 network as a television deal just doesn't, doesn't and I don't think can't make as much as Big Ten or SEC. And a lot of that, uh, and Jeremy, you know, I have an East Coast bias, right? Like the sometimes these primetime USC games or UCLA games, they'll be at like 11 o'clock East Coast time. So, you know, it makes sense as to why those games don't get as many eyeballs as a true primetime, like eight o'clock game, eight o'clock, you know, East Coast game, just because there's more eyeballs on the product. So that's, uh, you know, when you read the, the rumors and innuendo, it seems like that's part of the reason that UCLA felt inclined to move that, that they could also, right, increase the eyeballs on their school and increase the dollars coming in by moving and having to play games against Ohio State, against Rutgers, against Indiana schools that, you know, are playing maybe more favorable time zones. So, you know, I, I think from a business perspective, it makes a ton of sense, you know, uh, and I know you are as well. I'm all about student athletes, student athlete, athlete mental health. I'm not sure how this travel schedule is going to impact them, but, you know, it's all about the Benjamins, apparently. You know, Dan, I love what you said, because I, I think that some perspective on that is is so important, right? And I think you nailed it on the head. Number one, UCLA and USC are in the second biggest market outside of New York, and uh, they don't get the exposure. There's often this sort of East Coast bias people talk about, think that you mentioned, where ESPN doesn't necessarily cover what's going on in Los Angeles. And most people are paying attention to the East Coast. I actually would am not going to mind, you know, getting up early and watching games and seeing that and frankly having having the ability to watch a game and then and then have the rest of the day to do work or whatever it is, right? I think it provides for that exposure. I'm going to look forward to traveling back east to go to some of these iconic stadiums. And I'm sure Penn State, Michigan, and all those other schools are going to look forward to coming to the Rose Bowl once every year or two or three years, depending on the schedule. But here's the interesting thing is when we're talking about traveling, the logistics are really important, but I think perspective is too. So we have 16, potentially 16 teams in the Big Ten, assuming that Notre Dame and maybe another school don't, don't join. That means that generally your first three games are going to be against non-conference opponents. Those are usually going to be home games for sort of the, the bigger name team, right? So I think like UCLA is playing like Alabama State this year or something like that. So you have that. And then the rest of your conference games, you know, you might not see Penn State once, but every two or three years, right? Same thing with Michigan. And then maybe you have certain games that you play every season, like you would have your UCLA USC, which that's a home, basically a home and home game in, in that sense, right? Because Coliseum and Rose Bowl are so close to each other. But I don't think it's going to be that much travel in terms of maybe you're talking, you know, you've got 12 games in a season. So six of those are away games. So, you know, now obviously the basketball schedule might be a little bit different, right? That's where I think maybe some of the scheduling becomes a bigger issue, but I'm sure they thought about that before they made the move, or at least I hope they did. (laughs) I I do as well. I mean, when we were, you know, we were just chatting, I I think, I think the part that kind of, you know, kind of alluding to it, UCLA seems by reports and I don't want to get in trouble and say it's not reportedly, but there's enough reports out there that, they have this big debt of $100 million and has to be solved somehow. So you can solve it, right, by getting a lot of extra money by switching conferences. Or the other part of this, which will help uh, lead us into the next area I wanted to take us, but like, or you could cut some some activities associated with the school that aren't making you money. So I, I say the term a lot, non-revenue generating sports. And by and large, I don't want to say exclusively, but the schools that, the sports that make money at, at 
schools are, you know, football and basketball. And there are a lot of other sports that are played at schools. And you know, by and large, those don't make the money because they're not on, you know, they don't get national television deals like the, like we're talking about the football deal. And they're not, uh, you know, we're not all signing up for uh, March Madness brackets for like, you know, men swimming. So there's just not as many eyeballs on the product. And that was kind of the fear. If you read the reports at UCLA, that they might have to cut some of those non-revenue generating sports, which, you know, we all love sports. I love sports in all shapes and sizes. So if you have to pick the two evils, right, if that's really what it is, you're picking between eliminating a full roster of uh, sports and eliminating those positions from the school versus just switching conferences. I mean, you know, you got to pick your poison here. But Jeremy, that, that'll lead us to, um, to the next part I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. You know, and it, what has been a pretty busy week in college sports, or maybe two weeks, all of a sudden, right, we knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of where, not when. The conversation of whether athletes, college athletes, should unionize. Penn State, that's, that's the story now. Uh, people at, uh, students at Penn State, the football team are trying to unionize and, and, you know, mobilize and be able to sit down with the school and negotiate as the same way a players union would at the Major League Baseball level, the NFL level. The NBA level. So we can we can talk about it. Obviously, this brings up shades of when Northwestern, a similar, you know, Big Ten school tried to start the unionization conversation, you know, a number of years ago. The difference being, obviously, Northwestern was a private institution and Penn State's a public institution. Not to say that it's it's not doable. And I am told the Penn State movement still remains very much alive and they'd like to be the first recognized college sports union. But certainly uh, you have some uphill battles. But Jeremy, I'll, I'll let you take it from here. You know, this is such an interesting topic, right? And, you know, in in my mind, Dan, you know, you're you're one of the, you know, top sports minds in the country. And I always love having these conversations with you and, you know, really sort of one of the, uh, in my mind, one of like the original sort of like of this sort of like new generation of sports, you know, sort of attorneys. And, you know, this is such an interesting topic. And, and, and I think why it's interesting is that it's hard enough to organize a union when you're talking about one league and one set of values, uh, if you will, or at least one set of rules. So when Major League Baseball and Kurt Flood and, you know, and, and that whole sort of creating the players union and, and, and sort of fighting it to the, to the Supreme Court in terms of creating players rights and all this, that was hard enough as it was. And that was done in an, in a time you know, when you still had one league, essentially, you had Major League Baseball, you had American League and National League, but you had one entity and you had the players sort of rallying around each other. The The likelihood of that happening in college sports, at least in the current space, is very, very unlikely because you're dealing with, number one, public and private schools. So automatically you have two different institutions, which you don't, you know, you don't have public and private, you know, entities in, in, in professional sports. Then you've got, you know, different conferences. So you've got, you know, Power Five plus all the other conferences. And then, of course, you've got students who are in completely different situations. You know, you've got, and you're not dealing just one sport, you're dealing with all sports, unless the call would just be for one sport, which again, maybe creates another problem of the have and the have nots, right? So in my mind, I think the name, image, and likeness changes that happened across the country this time a year ago we're all towards trying to alleviate that problem of quote unquote paying players uh, and giving them an opportunity to make money off the field. But uh, I think the union is in its current iteration is very unlikely. I think the Northwestern case in the past really showed that there, there's really not much of an appetite for this. And again, maybe all the players don't even agree. 
and you're talking about in basketball, you might be in college for one year and in football, it's three. And by comparison's sake, just in those two sports, a basketball career is going to you know, last an average of at least five years. And in football, it's going to be three and a half. So just by comparison's sake, there's not even enough time uh, in terms of uh, what would happen in that short period of time that you're in college. But that's just sort of my initial assessment uh, as to sort of the, the college union pursuit. Those that have followed my platform, you know, I, I've kind of warned about this for a while. The NIL era is and was fun because of the level of chaos it induces. I'm saying fun just because, you know, for us, Jeremy, covering the sports law stories, NIL has been a complete animal and it's required an all hands on deck approach. But at the end of the day, there's no one that's going to come out anymore, at least as we sit here in, in July of 2022, that's going to say NIL is bad. It's bad for the schools. You know, it's just, you know, because at the end of the day, financially, the money is coming from boosters, from outside sources. The school is still making all of that revenue, still keeping 100% of that pie when it comes to the television deals and it comes to, you know, tickets and merchandise and all this. And I have, you know, been warning people for ever since the NIL began. Yes, NIL is great because schools are going to support it, you know, boosters, everybody, because they're still keeping their money. The union conversation is very different because, you know, what's going on at Penn State, which, you know, I, I'm not sure if, if it's going to be Penn State, it's going to be the first school to unionize, but someone will try it. Someone, a football program will do it. And I mentioned football or basketball because those are your revenue generating sports. Because right now uh, you can look at any, look at the books of any program in the country. They're going to generate the vast majority of their revenue, you know, a vast, vast majority from football and basketball. And then they're going to support those other sports through the, that profit. So that's, again, the same conversation that's occurring at UCLA, you know, that potentially, right, they might have to cut Olympic sports. You're never going to hear UCLA talking about cutting the football program because that's the one that makes the money. So uh, here's the problem, right? And I should say UCLA basketball, I'm sure, makes a ton of money, one of the premier programs in the country. But the problem is, right, if the players are allowed to unionize and they're allowed to bargain, just as Penn State um, you know, I, uh, one of our friends, uh, one of the fr- friends of the show, Amanda Kristovich, has a, a great article up on Front Office Sports. I implore everybody to check that out. But she's explaining that that was one of their initiatives. The, the Penn State players were petitioning for a piece of the revenue pie and, be- and better medical care. And when I say petitioning, it didn't really get off the ground. Some players had signed up. Some players had backed out. Sean Clifford, the quarterback there, was uh, pointing out that they should get a better piece of the revenue pie and you know medical care. So if they get a better piece of the revenue pie, great. It's fantastic if you're, you know, one of the football players or a family member. But if the school loses, right, 50% in theory or 40% of that football revenue, it goes into the football players' pockets. And then the Penn State basketball players, they want to do the same thing, right? And they want to take 40% of the basketball money. The other sports, right, they have to think that those guys uh, and those guys and gals and those other sports are all of a sudden on the chopping block. So, you know, I point out that, the NIL era was pretty universally applauded that everyone was in support of athletes getting paid, but schools, right. They know their bottom line, right. An alumni who didn't play basketball or football, they're probably not going to be so happy with the union era. We're not there yet. It's, it's around the corner. I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. I'm just saying it's, if you thought the NIL was a disruptor to the world of college sports and purity, the unionization era is going to be that, but tenfold. I agree. It changes everything. I mean, I think ultimately, there's already sort of, if you're looking at a progression, I think the move to large television contracts was the first thing. I think the move to sponsorship and endorsement deals by teams was the second. 
I think uh, video games was probably a third, even though it wasn't necessarily that schools were involved in that, but possibly in terms of making money. And then the the third or the fourth would be uh, this this sort of uh, move to NIL. And then the fifth uh, would probably be this idea of unionization. And then somewhere in those five different things is this sort of the NCAA's removal of its sort of power in the sense that they relax the rule on being able to profit from your name, image, and likeness, number one, but that too, they also gave the power five conferences more autonomy, which I think has led to a lot of conference realignment, where essentially what's happening is there's some schools that are moving up the ranks, so to speak, from, you know, sort of out of the power, power five into the power five. But then there's also most, most of the exchange has been power five to power five, meaning that you know, SEC taking schools from the Big 12, you know, Pac-12 taking schools from the Big 12, you know, other schools moving from ACC and, uh, you know, Big 10 and everything else. But I I agree with your assessment, not saying whether it's good or or bad, but it'll definitely change the system forever. The the truth is, if if we said it was good or bad, someone's going to yell at us. So we're better off just saying, hey, it could be good or bad. Got one more thing for you on the NCAA front. And, you know, uh, just I was going to ask you about Kyler Murray's independent study contract, but I'll, I'll save that for our conversation offline. But, you know, the NCAA, Jeremy, has been sitting here in the sidelines. You know, there's a report that came out, you know, last week, that the NCAA is planning to adopt a system where players can transfer freely. It's not going to be the facade of this one-time transfer rule that there might be a world where athletes can just come and go as they please. They could be a, uh, a hired gun, so to speak, like a LeBron working on one-year contracts, right? And why is that? Why would an athlete want to do that? Because as we've seen, an athlete says they want, they're thinking of transferring. Their school sometimes ponies up. And I don't want to say the school, but the collective or some way they find a way to get paid. And then vice versa, there is a pot of gold waiting for them on the other side of the, the transfer portal window. So, you know, it's it's a weird world that we're in. Again, I, I don't know if it's good or it's bad. It's just not necessarily the world of college sports I grew up with, which is fine. You know, player empowerment is at an all-time high. But I don't know. The NCAA was supposed to be policing this, you know, improper inducement language. Someone offering somebody money to switch schools. Now, I've, I've seen pretty preeminent people in the NIL space say, yes, that's not allowed. But the NCAA doesn't have a prohibition on paying a player to remain at the school. So I'm like sitting here, you know, and I consider myself, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm a pretty savvy guy. You know, I know what the word inducement means. Inducement can mean, you know, you accept a certain amount of money to switch schools. But the way I would use inducement, you can induce someone to remain at a school, right? So the NCA's prohibition on improper inducements, yeah, it's a prohibition. Congrats, the NCA is doing nothing about it. But I, I just tend to think that, A, the NCA's rules don't cover what's going on right now. And B, even if they did, the NCA has done jack. And if people think I'm a uh, you know broken record that I've kept saying this, I keep saying it in the hopes that someone associated with the NCA will listen to the cries of myself. I'm sure yours too, Jeremy, and the people that follow the space to say like, hey, if we're talking about problems here, right? And I don't know if they're problems, but unionization requires some heavy lifting. And Jeremy, to the point that you made earlier, right? We have unions in pro sports, but they represent the entire NBA. They represent the entire NFL, Major League Baseball. They don't represent certain teams. I remember just in our sports little history books, Jeremy, do you know the, the whole story with the NFL quarterback club with the, you know, the, the video games back in the day? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So back in the day, like the, the quarterbacks were like their own separate labor force and they like did separate deals with video games. And that was problematic as you would imagine amongst the ranks, you know, so they've, they've since devolved that, but 
to have Penn State unionize, right? Like as a football program, I'm not sure how you collectively bargain, right? When you're you only want to split the revenue with your school. How does that impact the rest of the, you know, the schools and the television deal? Does that mean Penn State should get paid differently than the other schools? So it's tough. It's just, it's a concept that's foreign to our, our sports minds. Not to say that it can't be done, but I'm just sitting here waiting for the NCAA to step up and do something, right? And I don't, I don't necessarily know what the right answer is, but I'm not, I'm certainly not paid the big bucks at NCHQ to figure it out. But obviously, you know, there's a need here and the NCAA seems, um, you know, uh, remiss to, to actually fill that in. Right. No, and I agree completely. And, you know, I think by nature of collective bargaining is that the idea is that you collectively bargain and you collectively move together, right? But that's clearly not happening. And I think for some of the reasons, different conferences, different divisions, different sports, different schools, private, public, all those things kind of present pre- present problems, maybe prevent uh, and prevent it from happening. But you know, I, I agree with you. The NCAA front is the biggest thing. I, I sort of thought that this summer would be a great time for the NCAA to come down, you know, really hard on on the NIL sort of rules and say, here's our rules. Here's some violations of what occurred, if there was. But it clearly hasn't happened uh, to this point. And I thought, you know, okay, it's a year point, you know, since we've done NIL, this would be a great sort of, you know, period of time to address the concerns that, you know, namely and most popular raised by Nick Saban and, and the dispute with him and Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M, you know, so in terms of what was NIL used for it. And I just got a couple of comments on this. In my mind, I look at a true pure NIL deal as something where you're the star quarterback at Fordham and Fordham says, why'd you pick Fordham? I was a right. It's where I went to law school, but yeah, that's right. That's right. No one else knows that. I want to give you, I want to give you some, uh, some, some shout out there. So, all right. So let's say Dan Les is the starting quarterback at Fordham and lost the pass. Okay. Go ahead. (laughs) That's right. So, but I'm just thinking to myself, like, let's say that I work for Nike and I approach you and I say, all right, I want you to endorse our product and there's no existing conflicts or whatever. And we sign you a deal. And the deal is for you to post on your social media for a period of time. And we pay you in either product and, or, you know, some sort of fee that to me is a true NIL deal where you get sort of, you know, kind of into some gray water is you're like, well, what about if you're getting paid to do a job? Or what about if the school uses that to recruit you? Or what if the school is organizing those talent deals, those NIL deals, and then taking a percentage of it? So I think those are all questions the NCAA should really be involved in. And I I had written a column on this recently, and I sort of had these like outstanding questions. And they were basically, and as, as outlandish as this might sound, I said, will a salary or talent cap be needed in college sports to prevent super leagues or super teams? And I said, should NIL collectives be banned? And will the NCAA and colleges put dollars towards hiring compliance officers? And not only that, but securing the necessary software to assist in regulation. And of course, how is the college football playoff and March Madness going to change through expansion? I mean, all these sort of questions that are unanswered. And I think NCAA is at the center of it. uh, And they should be at the center of it. Uh, They should be in in the middle of of regulating this because Congress is definitely not going to do it. Yeah, let's see. I mean, uh, I'm hearing whispers in the background that 
maybe the collective era is going to be short-lived. I'm hearing just a lot of rumblings behind the scenes. So, you know, if I hear something concrete, maybe I'll, I'll drop a lust bomb, which I'm, I'm uh, tend to do, right? So, Woj <laughs> has his bombs. Jeremy, what do you have, an Evans bomb or you want to go by, with a Jeremy bomb? <laughs> I don't know if I'm dropping. I don't know if I'm 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 dropping too much that way. But usually, you have a great way about doing that. But yeah, I don't know what I would call it though. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm gonna trademark lust bomb. I think uh, yeah. I get away with that. Well, Jeremy, it was a pleasure having you on. Um, again, Jeremy, uh, as your listeners know, your show obviously is Believe in Sports all with Jeremy Evans. Our show, Conic Detrimental. Yeah. So, Jeremy, always a pleasure. I'm sure uh, we'll speak too soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, my friend. Thank you. Okay, speak to you soon. All right. So that was Jeremy Evans. You can find him on social media at Jeremy M. Evans ESQ. So yeah, I've known Jeremy for a long time. I was having a conversation with Jeremy Landis. As you know, we are launching the Sports Law Awards. Uh, so we are accepting nominations. Nominations remain open on our website. And uh, I have the, the Instagram post pinned and I have it on my LinkedIn. So we are currently accepting nominations. So we're identifying next gen award winners. Those are people that have been admitted for less than five years. They could be law students, or they could be lawyers that are third year lawyers, fourth year lawyers, fifth year lawyers. We have a a separate award for sports law trailblazers that are being given to people uh, that have practiced for six years or more. Just going to both identify, you know, trailblazers, obviously the blaze they trail in sports law and the next gen, you know, would be the next trailblazer at some point in time. I met, I met Jeremy, just a quick story in networking, which I, which I like to do from time to time. When I was at Fordham, I competed in the Tulane baseball arbitration competition as a 1L. Jeremy Evans was there as a 2L and he was advertising that the next year they were going to run a competition at his law school, Thomas Jefferson School of Law, that was going to be called the National Sports Law Negotiation Competition. Now, this might seem like not a big deal to some of you uh, young law students listening, because now there are plenty of sports law competitions. But back in 2010, maybe that was 2011, right around there, 2010, 2011, Tulane Sports Law was the only uh, competition in town. So Jeremy created uh, the National Sports Law Competition in San Diego, Thomas Jefferson. I hit him up the next year and I'm like, hey, listen, I'd like to do a version of this for the Fordham basketball competition. Jeremy was very giving with his blueprint and his model and how he got room space and food and how he booked judges and the format. So that was 10 years ago. And now there are, I don't know, like 10 sports law competitions around the country. And, you know, sometimes in life you pay it forward. So Jeremy paid it forward to me. I paid it forward since then. And obviously we started the soccer competition at New York Law School this year. There's the football competition at, at Villanova. There are sports law competitions really, uh, you know, around the country. So if anybody is ever looking for information on them, I'm certainly happy to provide. But why I bring the story up, Jeremy, years ago, was blazing a trail, whether he knew it or not, whether he just was doing something fun, you know, he did it. So I told him he's on my short list of trailblazers for really blazing a trail and then opening up a law firm. Landis, how's this for the name of a law firm? The, The name of the law firm is called California Sports Lawyer. Like, can you market yourself any better? Hey, you are what you are. So might as well be the title of your firm. You are what you eat, right? So if I'm out there eating a lot of Big Macs, like I'm just a giant Big Mac. If he's out there calling himself California sports lawyer, bing, bang, boom. Now, Jeremy is a really, really bright guy and a, and a friend of mine now for over a decade from some chance encounter at a, a Tulane sports law. So those are the type of people we want to recognize. There are other people that have reached out uh, on for the version of next gen. And certainly, so we don't have a cap on the amount of people we're going to recognize, but you guys want to reach out, um, you know, for more information, we're happy to provide it. Okay. So we're gonna do something new this episode. Um, We are now in like kind of the dead zone of sports, right? We are past basketball. We're past hockey. 
football hasn't started camp starting up got baseball but we're not really caught the playoffs so i wanted to use this opportunity landis try out a new segment here it's called what to bet on how about that dan wallach is mr sports gambling legislation guy i'm kind of the resident gambler in our crew and i know you are at least you dabble. You dabble in the arts. Obviously, sports betting is not legal in North Carolina. It's legal over here in New York. But you, you know, look at them. You look at those lines like longingly as if it will soon be legal in North Carolina. I have an idea for my my bet here. I have a little bit of a hot take. I'm going to let you go first. Okay. But listen, I, I'm going to call you out unless you say it appropriately what you thought this line was before you bet it. <laughs> my bet and what I'm betting on this year is, as Dan corrected me and told me, uh, the line currently for the Panthers win total is six and a half wins. I am betting the way over uh, on that one. So I'm not going to tell you what I thought the line was. I'm not going to remind everybody what I... <laughs> the, the rule, the rule whenever I'm looking at futures or I'm looking at a... You know, uh, if I'm looking at anything with when I go to the horse track, I, you know, I, I dabble in the arts of, of horse racing, but you want to think of what you like. Okay. I understand the horse. I understand the, the team really well. Here's what I think the line should be. Same thing when you try to guess the lines like Bill Simmons does with uh, Cousin Sal, you guess the line. And if you're way off, like, let's say you think the line is going to be like minus 10 and the line is like minus three, you're kind of legally obligated to bet you have to take the minus three set because you thought it was minus 10. You're ready to bet at minus 10. I go to Landis. I go, what do you think the line is for the uh, Carolina Panthers? Your Carolina Panthers. He's like 10 wins and I'm taking the over. And I'm like, definitely not 10 wins. So we looked at it. It's six and a half. Landis, you are legally obligated in a, in a permissible means. Listen, I've, I've done my research into the sports betting laws around our country. All you have to be is physically in the state that is legal in order to place a bet on. What is the closest state to you proximity wise where we're betting is legal? What, what's the closest state? So that would be probably Virginia, I think. And Virginia. How far away is Virginia? Yeah, right now, it is probably an hour and a half away from me. That's but it. we can, we, we, I should let you know, we can bet in person in North Carolina. There are two casinos or one casino right now in the mountains that you can go and you can bet in person. It is not closer for me to go to those places than it is for me to go to Virginia, but we can do it. And so maybe I will make a trip up there. And Landis, are you married? Do you have kids? I'm not married. I do not have kids. There is nothing holding you back from taking a little trip to the casino up there. Okay. So listen, at some point before the season starts, we got, we got a couple weeks. You're going to have to place a bet on, on the over legally. We do not bet. We do not condone illegal gambling on this podcast. Okay. Lena, so your, your pick is the over six and a half. You feel that confident about it. Baker Mayfield, run it back. Got a massive chip on his shoulder. That's your take. You ready we for that? You ready for that? Three quarterbacks. I'm ready. And now I'm ready for your take. Yeah, just a little wildcat quarterback. Just don't know who's going to throw the ball. Just put three in the backfield. So, okay. Uh, this is a little, little bit of a, as close as I get to a sports law gambling take. So um, I am, uh, I'm in New York where the U.S. Open is held. I, I usually go to the U.S. Uh, to the Tennis Open. You know, uh, obviously Novak Djokovic just won Wimbledon. Uh, if anybody was watching, he had a very entertaining final against uh, Nick Kyrgios, who I did not know before his uh, run. And very, very uh, let's say, colorful guy, this uh, Kyrgios fella. It's obviously an entertaining final. Novak is the best player in tennis right now. So there is no surprise that he is the number one favorite right now to win the U.S. Open men's tennis finals. He is at, as of, at least as of right now, he's either at plus 130, which uh, is like one and a half to one for our horse racing people, or he's like plus 150. He's right in that range. And the next closest guy, I think, is uh, Danny Medvedev. If anybody's a tennis fan, he's like two and a half to one. So it doesn't, it's normal that he is the favorite because he's the best tennis player. But in the United States, as of today, as the time we record this podcast, you cannot enter the country 
as an un unvaccinated individual without having some type of special exemption. Novak does not seem to have any of those exemptions and the US Open made a statement very publicly that they're going to adhere to the US government's laws with respect to the travel into our country of unvaccinated persons. So Novak is very clear that he is not fitting the criteria of someone that's gonna be allowed in our country right now. He's just not. So it's not really a political take, it's just the laws. Same, same thing that happened with the Australian Open. So I saw that news and I saw the US Open clarify that they're not making any exceptions for Novak. And I'm like, okay, obviously he's gonna be a big dog. He's gonna be a big underdog. He's gonna be like five plus 400, 500, whatever it is. He is the favorite. So I'm gonna, I, want, I wanted this on record. I made the take on Twitter, but I wanna put it on the podcast so I can have this nice little clean cut here. You should, if you are a fan of tennis or if you're just a fan of betting odds, my sense is that Novak will not be allowed to compete in the US Open. And all of the people behind him, the guys, be it you know Nadal, you go all the way down, some guys that are six to one, 10 to one, Alcaraz, right? Those guys are going to have their odds drop vociferously, whatever the right term is. They're going to drop a lot, a lot, a lot. So this is your time. If you want to get in on the odds, you want to get the money in before the line moves, bet anybody not named Novak, and I think you will be rewarded handsomely. Except one of them wins. If a dog wins, if a really big dog wins, I'm sorry. But any favorite, like between two and six, I don't think you can go wrong. And so my bet is not Novak. And I am thinking that the books, just like they messed up with the Australian Open, just don't understand that, like, New York is not changing their laws and the country is not changing the laws in the next six weeks. So yeah, the uh, U.S. Open is in August. We're getting pretty close. And yeah, for some reason, the books are not moving. So either they know something we do not or they are just going to take a bath and get hit pretty hard when a big dog comes in. Linus, you want to bet the U.S. Open with me when, when you're driving up to the Virginia casino? <laughs> I need to especially with this information. <laughs> this, this is public information. I'm looking at the odds every day. I'm like waiting for them to jump. No dice. And I'm like, anytime a line is fishy like that, I'm usually not inclined to hit it, but I'm like, no, I, I'm pretty clear that the, that the books are wrong. So we will see. Okay. So that'll, that'll do it for us over here. Connect Detrimental. We want to wish a special good luck to our core members over at Connect Detrimental taking the bar this week. Emily Costanzo, Jason Morin, and Taryn Charma. Taryn's been taking a little bit of break from the newsletter as he is studying for the bar, but our own Stephanie Weissenberger has been filling in admirably for him in his newsletter absence. So yeah, for all of us here from Landis, myself, Dan Wallach, and everybody over at ConicDetrimental.com, we will see you next time on another episode of Conic Detrimental. Detrimental.